It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Scano Seguanibo Jo Kwekwe Tansi, and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and you are listening to Element FM in Ottawa and Toronto, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa. You can also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app if you download that app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM. And you could be listening on your device of choice anywhere across the country. I would like to add one more welcome, I believe, to the show today. And that is Buenos Dias. I believe that might be the correct uh, way to uh, welcome our next guest. And that is Gabriela Jimenez. She is the Latin American Partnership Coordinator for Keras Canada in Toronto. And she's here to talk to us about a new online hub for the empowering of Indigenous women uh, with land and water defenders as well. And uh, she is the lead in developing this online hub that connects and helps further empower the women, land, and water defenders in Canada and also around the world. Uh, it's called Mother Earth and Resource Extraction, or MIR Hub, and the resource was developed in consultation with Indigenous women who are at the forefront of environmental protection. So, Gabriella, welcome to the show. Buenos dias, David. Thank you for having me here. <laughs> it's a pleasure to have you. Uh, I always like to add those uh, as much as we can to the, the world we have of the languages that uh, make up this planet when someone is, is, in, uh, is in our studio. So it's great to have you here. Um, this is, sounds really interesting, of course, and it's wonderful that you did this. This did launch on, I think, November 27th? Uh, the Officially launched on November 25th, 5th. on the International Day of the Elimination of Violence Against Women. Yes. But we had our public launch in Toronto on November 27th. Okay. And how did it go? It went great. The, we had two women land defenders from Latin America, one mm -hmm. from Colombia, Isabel Zuleta, who's fighting a hydroelectric uh, dam, who's at a part of a Rios, a, a Rios Vivos movement. And we also had a land defender, a Maya Cachiquel woman, indigenous woman from Guatemala named Natalia Atsunuk. And they were in conversation uh, with Magdalena Ugarte, who's a professor in uh, urban planning at Ryerson University. And we also had some indigenous drumming and singing by mm. Kathy Calfchild and a dance performance about the situation that human rights defenders are facing in Colombia by members of CASA, the Colombian Action Solidarity Alliance. So it was a packed house, uh, intergenerational audience, um, lots of lots of important uh, activism and work was spoken about uh, land defense in Latin America, but also with with ties to to Canada. We also had Sherry Pictou, who's a Mi'kmaq scholar at Mount Saint Vincent University, zoom in via video uh, to talk a little bit about the importance of land defense and the for the the impact that women, Indigenous women, um, have on the defense of the environment. Now, of course, we we want to talk about uh, women and their involvement uh, in the, the the forefront of these issues, but. Before we get there, you mentioned the word activism. Yes. And uh, I wanted to, to touch on that because I recently heard uh, a, a youth talking about uh, issues, environmental issues. Mm -hmm. And specifically, I thought it was interesting that they pointed out that uh, I guess uh, youth people are, are trying to take that word activism out of what we might think of always being a, a, some kind of protest, but saying you can do this right in your very in your home, in your where you work. You can make activism part of your daily uh, 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 raising awareness and challenging things to make sure this this planet moves in the right direction, and I thought that was really interesting. It is interesting, and I think it's amazing the work that young people are doing in the face of climate change around the globe, right? Um, and yes, I, I would agree with what they're saying. Activism is 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 big actions like protesting, but mm -hmm. it's also the everyday, right? Mm -hmm. And I think that that's something that the youth are reminding us that activism is our everyday actions, everyday uh, practices that we do in our daily lives to ensure um, that that human and non-human life is is respected and treated equally. And I think that's one ways is one way that the world is changing. Because mm. the youth are are the ones that are going to be most impacted by the challenges that are now facing the planet, and uh, it makes sense that they are taking this to uh, to their doorstep uh, and taking it to their employers and taking it to everyone. Uh, even how the purchases are going to be made in the future, you know, I've seen a number of uh, of things happening in that regard as well. It's great to see. But let's get back to what we're here to talk about uh, more directly and this hub that's being created. And, and also, you know, I guess in many ways, do we, do we really think of women 
in regard to the impacts of these things. You know, sometimes we don't necessarily mm-hmm. think of that. And it's really interesting how that this is, this is being brought forward. Uh, so can you explain that a little more for people that may not understand or, or see where this is going? Yes. So the hub is actually part of uh, larger work that Kairos uh, does on the gendered impacts of resource extraction. Right. Mm. Since uh, approximately 2014, Kairos has been working in partnership with defenders in Latin America, in Canada and across the globe to highlight uh, the the impacts of resource extraction on women, to draw attention to indigenous women's work in the defense of, of Mother Earth. Uh, to press for the recognition of indigenous women as decision makers in these processes and to advocate right for corporate accountability within the the uh, Canadian extractive sector. But yes, I mean, um, we know that that there are different kinds of a- impacts of, of resource extraction. And we're talking about sort of large scale resource extraction, open pit mining, uh, hydroelectric dams, for example. And, and different people live these impacts differently. And what we see is that, that women in particular, um, because of sometimes uh, domestic work and their proximity to water, um, due to their defense of, of land, due to the rise in sexual violence that often accompanies these extractive projects, um, there are specific or gender-specific gender impacts that, that women that live that others might not. It, they include skin maladies, uh, gastrointestinal issues with, with drinking contaminated water. Um, as I said before, increase in violence from, from war camps. Often we've seen this um, here in, in Canada. Um, environmental impacts, which are tied to, to some of the health impacts, right? The, spill, the toxic waste spilling onto water sources. And, and then there are political consequences, right? Since because women and indigenous women are at the front, forefront of, of the defense of, of land and water, they're often stigmatized, ostracized, um, harassed for their work, both within their communities and outside com- uh, out of their communities. You know, I thought uh, it was very interesting. Uh, you mentioned some of the uh, the, the the violence against women uh, when when some of these uh, these camps mm-hmm. show up, and people, you know. And, and at first, I went, how, "What does that mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, how how does that relate?" But when you read about the fact that these men are showing up, and they might be socializing, might be whatever. And, uh, of course, uh, strange people, uh, they're mixing. And, of course, uh, unfortunately, there's, there's violent acts that, 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 uh, per- that are perpetrated against women in these, in these areas. And this is something that Reclaiming Power in Place, the, the final report of the, the inquiry on national, uh, the missing and murdered indigenous women and, and women, has an entire section or a deep dive uh, that focuses specifically on resource extraction and gender-based violence against indigenous women, right? And they, they highlight that these work camps tend to accompany uh, an increase of of workers who are not local to mm-hmm. these communities, right? And so they tend to be the, the ones with the highest paid jobs. And so there's a lot of uh, discretionary income, uh, there, which also causes uh, a rise in, like, say, rents. And so the housing stock um, diminishes, mm-hmm. There's a whole slew of issues that, that accompany these work camps, right? And we've seen it. It's in the report. Um, and so I think it's important to highlight it and to recognize and talk more openly about what's going on. I, I think the other thing, of course, that's, that's, that's interesting is that uh, it, isn't, it isn't just a local thing. It isn't just a, a Canadian issue. It's, yes. a, it's a global issue. It's a con- it's a global issue, very much so that it's driven in large part by Canada, uh-huh. because if we even accept the figures of the Canadian government, fifty percent, at least fifty percent of the world's mining corporations or resource extractive corporations are based in Canada, right? Yeah. Other people put the number more closer to seventy, yeah. but the government says is it's around fifty percent, and that's a lot, that and that's either through uh, d- directly or through subsidiaries, right? So even though we see this happening within the borders of what we call Canada, uh, Canada is also the major player globally on research extraction. Right, because when you when you look at these companies, then you want to approach these firms and and ask them what they're doing to help uh, mitigate these situations. And there are there are rules and regulations and policies that must they must abide by mm. um, that they don't always do, and because of the way legal courts or the justice criminal justice system works. Um, it isn't always uh, clear where uh, indigenous people or communities um, can go to to uh, demand that that uh, their rights be recognized. Right. Mm. Yeah. Um, now, of course, the first part of this uh, of this Mir Hub is, uh, I believe, uh, beginning. Uh, it's it's not in Canada. It's going to be mm-hmm. launching in Canada, but it's beginning 
right now? Where is it focusing? So the first phase focuses on Latin America, right. primarily but not exclusively, yes. right? So we have a background on uh, the Toronto Stock Exchange, these uh, extractive companies here, corporate accountability within the Canadian extractive sector operating abroad. But then there there is a focus on Latin America. So we have, for example, maps of, of where the concessions and conflicts are um, in these countries, we have um, a list of, of resources for in Spanish and in English for for women in Latin America. Everything from how to how to write a, a grant proposal to like here's this open resource um, uh, open source software for graphic design. Right, so it's it's just a hub. Um, that inc- that has a lot of information and resources, original and, and pre-existing um, for women in the defense of of land and the water right now in Latin America. But our hope and and the intention is to launch the Canadian phase uh, in the spring. Mm-hmm. Can you explain a little more about how this this hub is is approaching things? How, are you are you trying to reach women in the communities? Are you going after the the business, the organizations, the head offices, the governments? I mean, mm-hmm. what what? How is it being targeted? This is a tool that was made for and in consultation with Indigenous mm-hmm. women, right? So the primary audience, I would say, are Indigenous women and organizations who are um, working on the defense of of land and water. Um, it could also be the audience, a secondary audience, is is. Uh, researchers, for example, or other organizations in Canada and across the globe who are supporting um, women. But the the primary audience is Indigenous women, uh, Afro-descendant women who are in the defense of land and water. Um, And this is just a tool for them to use resources uh, to help them organize and mobilize so that uh, communities have um, as as much information as possible to make their own decisions, right? It's about making sure that people have the, the tools, the resources, the research uh, to collectively come to decisions. Now, I know uh, from my own experience uh, involved with my own community uh, and 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 other indigenous communities that there's always been sort of a, a network uh, between communities and especially, I think, among women, mm-hmm. uh, especially around issues of water mm-hmm. uh, and, and land and those kind of things mm-hmm. as, they, as they, the, uh, the, 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 the life givers uh, the they they are impacted uh, and and you know hearing what you're saying about how they are impacted, uh, it's it's troubling to of course to hear that and we should be uh, trying to do all we can, um, but going back to that that connection that was already there that that sort of mm-hmm. um, you know the moccasin telegraph mm-hmm. or whatever you might mm-hmm. want to call it that was established uh, between indigenous communities and even you know not even uh, even across borders mm-hmm. and you know I mean you hear a lot of of traveling that mm-hmm. goes on between. Uh, 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 and partnerships between indigenous communities mm-hmm. uh, across uh, the globe. Mm-hmm. Um, is there a, an awareness uh, for uh, Keros and and this this mere hub? Uh, is it how how is it being viewed internally from from these communities? Do they see this as a, as a way to uh, just bolster what they've already got established, or uh, are some people not aware? Of, of that support that's out there for them? I think it's a little bit of both, okay. right? I think, well, to sort of back up a little bit, the idea of this hub emerges from international gatherings among these networks mm. that you mentioned, both sort of within mm-hmm. Canada and, and abroad. And and so when we sort of went about building this hub, it was the intention to, to help uh, or to support the, the strengthening of networks beyond borders, right? And it was also to ensure that uh, land defenders from across the globe um, that maybe did not know that these networks existed, for them to know that these networks existed to help them sort mm. of grow their networks, right? So and, and sort of increase um, their, their their numbers. So yes, it's a little bit of both, right? It's it's support for them. It was it was constructed, built, developed in co- in consultation with with these networks and these women. So yes. Okay. I just want to let everyone know you're listening to Element FM. This is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Gabriela Jimenez, and she is the Latin American Partnerships Coordinator for Keras Canada uh, in Toronto. And we are talking about uh, this mere hub that uh, she uh, is the lead in developing. It's called Mother Earth and Resource Extraction. It's about uh, the resource, uh, the development, uh, uh, and how uh, to help further empower women, land, and water defenders in Canada and worldwide. 
so what are you when you say this is going to it's launching now mm-hmm. in Latin America mm-hmm. it's going to uh, in the spring hopefully going to be coming to to launch in mm-hmm. Canada and we talked a little bit about how uh, Canada plays uh, a big role in this because uh, about as you mentioned about 50% to to 70% of the uh, of the head offices of these these firms the mining uh, firms are based in Canada. Mm-hmm. That was quite surprising to me when mm. when when I read that. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it is surprising to to many people who hear that stat, mm-hmm. right? I think that oftentimes uh, the government of Canada um, likes to portray itself on the global stage as a defender of human rights mm. and as a defender of the environment um, and at the forefront of, of climate change. But the reality is that if you look at the numbers and if you look at cases um, in Guatemala, in Colombia, even here in Canada, look at what happened in British Columbia a few years ago with the Mount Polly mine disaster, mm. right? We see that something else is going on. So I think it's important to to talk about this openly, to bring it to the forefront, and to demand a little bit more from the government of Canada. Um, I think, it, to be clear, I, this hub is not about resisting uh, or being against resource extraction. It's about making sure that Indigenous communities are consulted and the Indigenous communities and the communities where these um, these projects are being planned are, are consulted and they're the ultimate decision makers, mm. right? And so this is a living digital hub. It's online. It's already, it's up now. You can visit kairoscanada.org. Uh, to visit to to access it and yes the content now primarily focuses on Latin America but in spring 2020 we will sort of launch the Canadian phase and so content on this online hub will um, include much more information on Canada can we uh, ex- expand a little bit more so yes. so when for instance uh, you say that the hub is there to help empower women yes. land and water defenders mm-hmm. um, but we were talking earlier about how these, the, these uh, th- this mi- the, the mining that's going on is affecting everyday women mm-hmm. through m- various ways. Mm-hmm. Just the, that these strangers uh, are, are setting up camps in their in their environments, in their ter- territories, and uh, there's socializing going on. Maybe they're employed by these mm-hmm. communities, uh, these mm-hmm. companies when those uh, uh, you know the, these uh, places are set up. So there's there's direct uh, impact from employment mm-hmm. could potentially. And and then there's uh, just the 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 the, the uh, as you mentioned the, um, the the money that's being spent by the people as they come in mm-hmm. to these areas. Um, so what are the other ways that women can be impacted that you know people may not be aware of in terms of this? So you we mentioned drinking contaminated yeah. water yeah. for sure. Yeah. Uh, but some some of the ways that people wouldn't necessarily think of that. I didn't think of that, you know. Is, it, can, is there anything else you can think of? I mean, yeah, there, there are a few other things, but I think it's important to sort of step back a bit more and, and think about how the entire model, as is the sort of extractivist model as is currently played out, is a very sort of hyper-masculine and hyper-sexualized mm. model, right? Mm. It's about going in the land and taking and taking, mm. Mm. often without consent of communities, yeah. often without consent of the land, mm. often consent with the resources of the other non-human animals. And so I think it's important that when we think about that in that sort of way, that we realize that the whole project is about just this whole huge capitalist project, mm. right? Which you're just taking as yeah. much resources without giving much in return. Right. And I think when you think about that, you realize um, that at the very at, at the base of it, right? It, it's this this model that that replicates the way women are treated, right? Yeah. In Latin America, um, many of the defenders have this uh, concept that they say cuerpo territorio, roughly translated body territory. So mm-hmm. what transpires on the body transpires on women's bodies just mm-hmm. because we're so intimately connected mm-hmm. um, to that. And some people in Turtle Island, some um, women's organizations also talk about these connections between the body and, and the land in, in, this, in similar ways, right? So mm-hmm. anything that transpires on the land, say, you know, they're... There's a tree growing with some some sort of sustenance, and that's in fact impacted by the water that's leaking, mm-hmm. impacted sure. by leaking, and then yeah. the women sort of eat that, right? Yeah. Or anybody in the community. Sure. So when you think about that, you think of all the ways that what happens on on the water, what happens on the soil, um, because of our connection, the way we live it, um, it just impacts your everyday life, right? This the air we're, we're breathing, everything, the toxic fumes, right? Well, I mean, the, the earth is a living being. Exactly. I mean, the waters are her blood. Yes. Right? Uh, she is our life giver as women are our life giver. So there is a definite connection there. There's a definite connection, and that's the intent between the na- behind the name, right? Mother Earth mm. and, and resource extraction, right? Mm. That, that Mother Earth. And I think that a lot of indigenous defenders 
um, women land defenders, that's what they're calling attention to, that Mother Earth is a living being. Mm-hmm. And what are we doing to protect her and, mm-hmm. and, and ensure her survival as much as our survival? And you also mentioned about this uh, capitalistic view of how it's always been take, 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 yeah. and very little give back. And yeah. we, we, I mean, I, I think you've got to be blind if you don't realize that yeah. we can't keep going on, on in, this, in this way. We have to start protecting the planet and taking care of it, or she will not be here to... Uh, allow us to survive anymore. Yeah, and how much is enough, right? No, exactly. For whom is enough, yes. Uh, Is there anything uh, that we haven't touched on so far that you think is important to mention? Well, um, just that uh, it'd be great if if people could visit the the hub. It's a living uh, hub. I said kairoscanada.org will take you straight to to the hub there. And if you ever, if you're going through the hub and you'd like to include material, we're we're happily taking material, um, particularly as we sort of focus on the Canadian phase. Um, and you can you can do so by emailing resourcehub at kairoscanada.org. Um, so when when it rolls out, what will what will that look like? In terms of like yeah, when you say it's going to launch, so yeah. when, when it launches, what will that look like? Well, the well the launch just means it's online now, okay, and it's available and it's open source mm-hmm. and anybody can can use it. And as I said, there's all kinds of kind of kinds of materials, uh, backgrounders on what is mining science. Uh, there's mm. legal backgrounders about what are the cases, impor- some of the important cases within the Canadian courts. Um, there are, um, like I was saying earlier, there are maps, there are guides on cybersecurity for human res- mm. uh, human um, rights defenders. There are uh, more practical sort of things on, on, like I was saying earlier, how to grant, write grant proposals, how to do mm. financial reports, how to, some resources out there for graphic design. Uh, there are academic uh, literature. There's uh, more gray papers. So there's a whole slew of information that's just there for defenders to use and anyone interested on the topic to use. And then when we say the Canadian phase, there will be more material that that is focused exclusively on some of the issues we're, say, we're seeing in Canada, the tiny house warriors, the, the grandmothers mm. out, out east in the Atlantic coast with the Alton um, gas and uh, the system mine, right? So we'll start having more of that uh, be featured, more content on the website. What are you What are you hoping that that this uh, this rollout will do? I'm just hoping that it'll hopefully ac- accomplish some of the goals we set out, right? Which is uh, making sure that women have indigenous women, indigenous communities have as much information as possible, so that informed decisions could be made, and that ultimately. Um, it is indigenous that all decisions are made that it, um, that it, they include indigenous women. Uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about women, but let's yeah. not let's not uh, eliminate this. Uh, if if any man wants to get involved oh, or help course, out and and uh, support this, uh, they're more than welcome, and they should. They they're more than welcome. No, and I think an, uh, sort of an underlining um, idea behind the hub is that you know this idea that I was talking about earlier, where the, the extractivist model is mm. hypermasculine and is mm-hmm. hypersexualized. Is that it affects men too? And mm-hmm. It affects the way men go about the world and yep. think about the world. And so, yes, nobody is excluded, right? <laughs> no, and, and I think that um, we, we shouldn't just just label it like that. You know, this is uh, this is uh, this is something that, uh, although we've been talking about supporting women here, uh, it's important for men to get involved and support this as well. So uh, it's been great uh, that you've come in and, and shared this with us, and we appreciate you doing so. I just want to reiterate uh, what you were saying earlier. People can go and find out more online at kairoscanada.org, and that is K-A-I-R-O-S Canada dot O-R-G. And uh, that's, uh, you, can, you can go there to find out more and find out more about Kairos as well. That's correct. Thank you so much, David. It's been our pleasure. Uh, any last words, any, uh, anything else you can think of that we, we you know, want to just touch on again? I just want to emphasize the importance of, of the final inquiry report on missing, mis- mm. mur- murdered Indigenous women and girls here in Canada, um, reclaiming, pa- reclaiming power in place. And I think it's important that uh, all Canadians read the, the document and be informed and, and take the cost to justice um, seriously. Mm. Great. Appreciate that very much. And that is uh, Gabrielle Jimenez. She is the Latin American Partnerships Coordinator for Kairos Canada, based in Toronto. And she was here to talk to us about uh, her lead in developing on this online hub to connect and help further empower women, land, and water defenders in Canada and around the world. It launched on uh, November 25th, Mm -hmm. 
and uh, it's a, uh, this first phase is focusing in Latin America, but in the spring of next year, uh, 2020, it will be launching in Canada. But you can definitely go and find out more right now by going to kairoscanada.org, and that is K-A-I-R-O-S, Canada.org, uh, to find out more. And as we've been talking about, and we mentioned, although this is focusing on women and helping women and empowering women, men are definitely welcome and should be getting involved with this these very important issues as well. So I uh, just want to say a thank you and Jimmy Gwetch uh, to Gabriel for coming in today. It's been a pleasure having you here. Gracias. Okay. Uh, please don't go away. We will be right back here on The Moment of Truth and Element FM right after this. Hey, welcome back to Element FM. I'm your host, David Moses, and you're listening to Moment of Truth in Ottawa and Toronto. In uh, Toronto, it's 106.5 FM. In Ottawa, 95.7. And you can also be listening on the Radio Player Canada app anywhere across the country. And if you download that app and type in 95.7 ELMNTFM or 106.5 ELMNTFM, you could be listening on your device of choice anywhere, anytime, right across Canada. Speaking of uh, right across Canada, I'd like to welcome my next guest to the show. She is online from Whitehorse. However, that is not her home community. She is uh, from Haida Gwaii, and it's a pleasure to welcome Terry Lynn Williams-Davidson. And she is a musician, get this, a musician, an author, an activist, an artist, and a lawyer. Yes, I said a lawyer. Now, how this figures into it, we're going to find out. It's a pleasure to welcome Terry Lynn to our show today. Thank you. Happy to be here. So, Terry Lynn, I have to say uh, that's quite a list that uh, follows your name. Uh, what's what's what came f- first? <laughs> uh, well, to be honest, what came first is a singer. That's mm. always been my first passion, mm. and um, I learned from. I, I sing in the Haida language, it's mm-hmm. an endangered Haida language. There are less than 20 people in the whole world who speak it, and for that reason, I think it's really important to keep singing it. I'm not fluent. I learned from my mother, and she recorded my great-grandmother, who was 109 when she died. And so um, that really is why it's so important to me. It keeps my connections to my ancestors. We're a matrilineal society. But with that connection, I also realized that to keep those songs alive, it was really important to keep Haida culture alive. And the way to keep Haida culture alive is to make sure that the land and sea are there for future generations. And that's how I got into my law work and my activism work and now my, more recently, the artistic work that I'm doing. Well, thanks for explaining that. I just want to ask you once again, did you say there are less than 20 speakers? Yes, there are. Wow. Wow. Um, well, that's uh, that's commendable on your end to very much uh, try to raise awareness and keep the language alive uh, and, and to, to make sure it stays that way. Uh, let me ask you this. Are there any efforts uh, in your community uh, to, to reestablish that language by getting it spoken back in the schools? Are there, is there a, re- a revitalization going on? Yes, there's a lot of great work happening. There's a lot of learners in the community and people who've been working for the last 30 years to make sure that it is brought into the schools and being taught. I'm not directly part of that work, but I know that they're doing really great work in teaching in the schools and making sure that there are new materials written in the Haida language. And can I ask you, I'm not sure if you know this, uh, if you have this information, but how many, uh, roughly, uh, what's the population of the Haida population at this point? Do we know? I think it might be around 10,000, not mm-hmm. all of which live on Haida Gwaii. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course. Uh, I have yet to get there, uh, but, you know, I've been out that way several times. My uh, family live on uh, Vancouver Island at this point. They all migrated west, and it's a beautiful place to be, of course. I don't have to tell you that. Um, but uh, let's let's talk a little bit more about the other things that you do. Now, I have to say that uh, I went to your, your website, of course, and I, I did some, some research on you to, to see what you were all about. And uh, the first thing I, I was very, uh, I was surprised and I was pleasantly surprised uh, to see was that, uh, you know, your, your, your work that you are doing uh, musically 
involves um, you've got some you got some great people <laughs> supporting you, uh, some ex players from from the band Chilliwack. That's that's wonderful. Yeah, it is a great honor to work with them, and we created the last album, Grizzly Bear Town, mm-hmm. and um, it was wonderful to work with two musicians who. Um, live uh, improvisational music. We recorded the album live off the floor, and they are incredible musicians, of course, as you know, and they were willing to give space for the Haida language, and, and we together found a way for each of us to express what what we love to do in the album. You know, it's great to hear that, and, and I'm not really surprised, of course, to hear about that improvisational kind of uh, uh, jazz uh, kind of feel that you t- just talked about in recording it live off the floor, but you also, uh, so I believe, you recorded some of this live in Haida Gwaii. Did you? Did you? Yes, that's right. We um, went down to the uh, southernmost tip of Haida Gwaii. There's a UNESCO World Heritage Site there and recorded two of the songs live in the village of Skangwai. And uh, we felt it was important um, to have the spirit of the land um, affect our improvisation and affect the music that we're creating. And it really was, it really did have that impact being two really powerful places, the village of Skangwai and Haida Gwaii. And of course that is you know, part of my thinking of really wanting to make connections with the land and sea and hoping that that would also contribute to the music that we were making to reach people more. You can hear the birds in the songs, in fact. I, I believe you can. I believe you, you, the water is pretty calm in the video that was being shot there that accompanies the, the, the one song, the uh, sister, a cedar sister, but uh, which I want to talk a little bit about. But... Um, the spirit, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to say that it it comes right out at you in that, in watching that video. It's definitely there, and it's very powerful. So I'm I'm so happy that you you did that for uh, for all of us to uh, to share in that. Thank you. Now uh, you, you mentioned uh, we haven't mentioned Bill Henderson and Claire Lawrence, the two people from uh, from Chilliwack that accompany you. And uh, they look like they're really relishing themselves in, uh, in in the music as well. It's so nice to see. Yeah, it was again. It was just a wonderful experience and a wonderful trip. And since we recorded the album, we've also been working with Jody Prosnick mm-hmm. and also uh, Camille Henderson and Saffron Henderson mm-hmm. for our live shows. And it's been wonderful to have an even greater sound because we are quite a small. A big band. <laughs> yeah. Um, and mentioning that, mentioning the live shows, um, do you tour uh, much of uh, of the country? We haven't toured much of the country. No, most of our shows have been here in British Columbia. Well, we're missing out. You should definitely come this way. <laughs> We'd love to. <laughs> Well, please make sure and try to do that. We'd like to see you, although it would be great to see you out on the West Coast as well. I have to try and... Uh, and uh, Can people go to find out... Uh, if, do you have something listed? I did try to look to see if I could see any, any shows or anything like that, but I couldn't see anything directly related to that. Yeah, I, I guess I've been remiss in updating that. We have a couple of um, two or three concerts coming next year, and I'll have to add that to the to the website. Okay, so Terry, we, we Lynn, uh, we've we've talked a little bit about your being a musician, but when do people go to your your website and they look up Terry Lynn Williams uh, Davidson, you'll see that uh, you are much more than that. We talked a little bit about how you got into law to help actually protect uh, the Haida Gwaii uh, culture and land, and uh, and that's wonderful. Uh, so I'm guessing that that is that your focus as a lawyer. Then that's what you kind of focus on as a lawyer. That's right. I've worked for my nation, the Haida Nation, since 1996, and uh, it's been the passion that drives me is making sure that the land and sea are protected. And uh, um, yeah. And how would you say that is going now? Are, are things changing? Are, are people in general, uh, non-indigenous people, businesses, uh, uh, governments, are they are they more accepting of trying to work? in conjunction with indigenous communities and and uh, and uh, protect the land and, and water? Yeah, I can only speak for Haida Gwaii because mm-hmm. that's my experience. Uh, but we've, the Haida Nation has done really great work 
in working with local settler communities. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, we've drawn this originated in original Haida laws that recognize that all people are people mm-hmm. with no distinction about what race you are and that we all need to be part of the solution to go forward. And so on that basis, the Haida have negotiated protocol agreements with the settler communities. One of those communities intervened in one of the cases that we brought to the Supreme Court of Canada in favor of us rather than supporting the province of British Columbia or the government of Canada. And so that really has had an impact in solidifying an island's community. And together we've worked through solutions to protect um, over 50% of the land base of Haida Gwaii and collaboratively manage 100% of the territory. And that's important because we've not yet negotiated a treaty or concluded our Aboriginal title lawsuit. So it's a, it's, um, it's a great achievement to, to be in that place and to have, um, be working collaboratively that way. We've also been, um, we're the first place in the world to manage from mountaintop to seafloor in the Guayanas area, and that's something that the Haida have worked with the Government of Canada for over 30 years now. So it's a really great model for reconciliation mm-hmm. and finding ways to work together. Even before the reconciliation was a buzzword, it's something that the Haida have been doing going back to the 1980s. That, that idea of reconciliation and working together is really what has informed the last album, too, and the, my last two albums in finding ways for the Haida language and traditional Haida music to live comfortably and beautifully with other traditions. Uh, it's interesting that you, you know, you talk about the, the legal side of things there uh, and how you, you're helping and, and the Haida have done wonderful here, uh, but you, you, uh, you know, morph that back into your, your musical work, which is really interesting. Uh, as you mentioned, you started as a singer and that's your, I guess, your first love. Um, and, and people can, uh, can see more of this uh, when they go to your, your website, as you mentioned, and we mentioned uh, that earlier. But uh, the other thing uh, that, uh, that uh, I, I find interesting is, is that uh, the, the video that I saw online about uh, one particular song is the uh, Cedar Sister song. And um, I, I think it was really interesting about uh, you know, the Haida worldview about the cedar tree and that it is every woman's sister. I really like that. Would you mind explaining that for people? Sure. So um, there is a very um, famous oral narrative that explains, it's a very long story explaining about how we came to understand that the cedar is our oldest sister, but really that belief is grounded in the fact that traditionally our entire life was was um, made easier and was possible through the cedar tree. So the bark created our clothing, our diapers, um, women's products. Mm. Uh, cedar was used for our homes, for hunting, fishing, cooking, and artistic implements. Cedar got us from Haida Gwaii to the mainland in canoes, and on and on. Uh, so it really, it really is a central being. And this is... This is a particular being that has really driven uh, my work. I actually told the Supreme Court of Canada about the Cedar Sister in the Haida case that we argued in 19, in 2004. The decision came down from the Supreme Court of Canada, and that allowed us to create the space for collaboratively managing because the court agreed that forests were really important to Haida culture and that Haida interests must be protected before treaties are negotiated. So that idea of the Cedar Sister um, hasn't left me in that I realize that if you shift how you see the world, then it actually has outcomes in how you manage and how you live in the world. And, and that idea of a supernatural being who is a Cedar Sister has really intrigued me in the last six years or so in my work exploring supernatural beings and my exhibit that's currently at the Bill Reed Gallery and uh, the book that I wrote about supernatural beings and the children's book that I just released last month and an oracle deck as well. All of those are, again, to help people to see the world differently, to see in the Haida worldview the land and sea are actually supernatural beings. They were supernatural beings that became the land and sea. And if you think of them that way, then you change your conduct towards them. And I think that's really important 
for us as humans to find a different way to walk, given the climate crisis that we find ourselves in today. Mm. You know, I think that, uh, of course, uh, Indigenous people have always thought this way, and uh, we might say that non-Indigenous people are slowly starting to catch up to the the thinking that uh, the planet is alive, that these supernatural beings are here, uh, and that we need to look at look at it. And, and as you say, it gives you a different perspective if you start to look at these things uh, in that way. So it's really interesting to hear you and thank you for sharing uh, those thoughts about that. Uh, and I'm glad you talked about the other things, the supernatural beings that you talked about. I wanted to get into that. Uh, I also, I'm, I'm just, you know, you mentioned, uh, we talked about Grizzly Bear Town, the, the release that uh, you had come out in 2017. It's available on iTunes Music, I believe. Yes, it is. And the other thing that, uh, if you know, can I ask, how did you connect yourself with Bill Henderson and, and Claire Lawrence from Chilliwack? It's, it's so great to see you involved with them, by the way. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, in 2008, eight and nine, I completed two projects that uh, collected all of the archival recordings uh, of the Haida Nation, mm. and we digitally restored those. Uh, that was part of my work with the Haida Gwaii Singer Society, and we decided that in addition to recording them and cleaning them up so we could learn from them, that we really wanted to convey the message that these songs are alive and still being used, and so we recorded an album of mm the Haida Singer Society, and Bill Henderson was the sound engineer <laughs> for that project. And he was really intrigued and curious about traditional Haida music, and, um, and, and that's how I came to meet him. Mm. And then a few years after that, uh, there was a fundraiser to raise money for, by Music BC, to raise money for instruments for Haida Gwaii. And they asked all the musicians who were performing at that concert if we would collaborate together. Yeah. And Bill Henderson was being honored that evening, and he was one of the, of course, one of the musicians who was asked to collaborate, and uh, everyone was asked if they would collaborate with me as well, <laughs> and really no one was willing oh. or ready to take on that challenge except for Bill. Oh, nice. And so we spent um, a couple of hours working through uh, two songs that were on my first album, New Journeys, and it was so wonderful to see to, to work in the moment like that with the music that we knew mm. that we wanted to do it again. And he called, he said, you know, this we need someone else as part of this, so I'd like to bring in Claire Lawrence. We've worked together for many, many, many years, and I think he'll do a wonderful job with us too. And so that's how we came together. And we, at that moment, decided that we wanted to create an album together and an album with new music, but based in traditional Haida song structures. Nice. Thanks for sharing that. And I want to let everyone know that you're listening to Element FM in Toronto and Ottawa. And uh, this is Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses. My guest is Terry Lynn Williams-Davidson. She is a musician, author, activist, artist, and lawyer who dedicates herself to the continuation of Haida language and culture. And she's speaking to us uh, who in Whitehorse uh, today. Um, now, we've talked about you being a musician, a lawyer, uh, to some degree, you, you, and I'm glad you, you, you sort of started to pull us in this direction, because if people go to your website, they will see that uh, we've mentioned about your, your being an author and an activist. Um, people can see uh, some of the new work. You have a show uh, that is at the Haida Gwaii uh, Museum um, on these supernatural beings, I believe. Yeah, actually, that exhibit opened at the Haida Gwaii Museum in 2017. Okay. And it's now at the Bill Reed Gallery in downtown Vancouver. Right. And so the, it's a much smaller show than what we showed in Haida Gwaii, but it is an exhibit of female supernatural beings, as you say. And I see that show as performance art. In each of the images, I become the supernatural beings. And in the process of becoming those supernatural beings, I feel that I learned more about them. I learned what the lessons were that were coming from the oral narratives because, like many indigenous peoples, there, there are narratives, but the lesson isn't given to you at the end. It's left with you to work through what it means to you. And so through the performance of becoming those supernatural beings and then documenting it in the photographs, that was my 
tool to learn more about them, and and that led to me writing the book out of concealment. Hmm. And uh, people can find out more, as we say, by going to uh, Terry Lynn Williams uh, Davidson website and uh, looking her up on social media. Uh, I have to say, uh, Terry Lynn, that uh, you know everything that I have seen of your videos of this, the, the work that you've created as an author, as, as visuals, and all the things that you have done, uh, are incredibly uh, well done. Uh, you know, uh, very high quality. The images of the video of around, you know, your, your Cedar Sister song, uh, it, it, all extremely well done. And I have to say that that takes time, and it does take, I'm sure you know, it takes some money to do that kind of stuff in, in the way that you have done it. Uh, so congratulations to you, first of all, um, and, uh, and and what wonderful images they are to that you've brought forward. Um, so, uh, but you know, again, uh, it, it's uh, it, it's wonderful to see, and I congratulate you for for doing all that. Thank you. Um, so, uh, you know, the other thing I read about, which I thought was was interesting, is you you. Uh, share this story about the the white raven. Now, what's interesting to me, of course, is about how the raven, as we know, is a trickster, uh, but you describe him a little differently, uh, and the white raven. And, you know, I have a, I have a, a story about the white raven uh, 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 from my own indigenous culture, that being Lenape. Uh, and it's a similar kind of story about how he became uh, black. Uh, his wings and, and his color became black from uh, from being scorched from from our uh, heritage story, uh, where he brings fire back from the Creator and has to fly through the cosmos. And as this fire gets closer and closer to him, he's scorched. But uh, your community has a different, a bit of a different take on it. Yes, that's right. Um, the White Raven story is one of the most famous stories. It's shared not only in the Haida Nation, but with other coastal nations here in British Columbia. And Raven transforms into a child, and um, in in the house of the Keeper of the Light, and convinces his her grandfather to receive to play with the light out of a bentwood box and eventually makes off with the light and brings it through the smoke hole. And when he, when Raven flies through the smoke hole, Raven becomes black. Mm-hmm. And um, we actually get our fire from the ocean realm. It's contained in cedar. So it's a, a little different. This was just about bringing light to the world. Mm-hmm. And I interpret White Raven as a being who went through sacrifice for humans so that we would have light and could live on this earth. And... Um, dramatically changed who they were. Uh, uh, there's a um, this image. White Raven is actually a light box in the exhibit, and there's mm-hmm. a companion light box showing Raven on top of the smoke hole, on top of the longhouse near the smoke hole, mm. completely black. And the message I say for that one, which is called Raven Outstretched, is that resources are so stretched so thin that. Um, and yet, we we don't know if we're honoring that gift from White Raven, the transformation that White Raven went through, so that we could have light. I don't. I feel that we need to do more to step up to honoring and you know, living the idea of reciprocity by making sure that we're honoring that contract of living properly on this earth. Mm. Uh, as I, I speak with more with you, uh, Terry Lynn, uh, I really see how that uh, everything that you're doing is is really connected. You're not. You're not a separate. You don't see yourself separate from being a musician or an author, or an activist, an artist, or or a lawyer. They're all part and parcel of, of making who you are and also bringing your message to the world. I think. Yeah, I think so. I see each one of these things as a different medium for relaying the same knowledge, mm-hmm. and I have to say I'm really inspired by the work of my husband Robert Davidson, who's a very well-known Haida artist. Yeah. Who works in many different mediums. Um, you name it, he's worked in it, and yet it's just a different way of expressing the knowledge. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that as I get older, <laughs> I realize that the urgency of 
arriving at solutions increases, and therefore I start trying to find even more and more mediums to try to reach people to make sure that that knowledge is brought out, um, which is the name of the exhibit and the name of the book is Out of Concealment, which is bringing that knowledge out of concealment for people to live with it again in the way that our ancestors would have. And you mentioned your husband, and he uh, some of his work is featured on uh, your website, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I made a decision to include his artwork in um, in each of the images for the exhibit, mm-hmm. and I it's because artists like him, many Haida artists, Bill Reed, Robert, uh, Jim Hart, many artists have depicted these supernatural beings, but in abstract form. Mm-hmm. So I wanted people to see the supernatural being as it might appear in real life, but ghost in the background, the abstract art, so that they could draw connections between the abstract representation and the more realistic representation of that supernatural being. Mm. Nicely said. And uh, I believe if anyone goes to uh, check out uh, Terry Lynn Williams-Davidson and go to your website or or check you out on, on social media, uh, you won't be disappointed with uh, anything you see uh, or anything you hear. Uh, the information is very well put together. It's very well presented. Uh, there's lots I really like from the social media things that I saw. You also incorporate some of the uh, some of the, the social uh, gatherings that you've gone to and some of the dancing, which I thought was really cool. You get to see some of the West Coast masks in uh, in performance because they're so wonderful. They're, they're, some of them are moving, of course. I'd never seen the frog one with the tongue jumping out before. That was pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's uh, a crowd pleaser. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, they're all they're all wonderful, and it's it's so wonderful to see uh, such a, a beautiful culture, of course. And I'm glad to hear that you're you're helping to preserve it and helping to and trying to to make sure that it gets out there. Uh, what were you hoping when you say you know you're doing this album? You you did it in the language. When you put Grizzly Bear Town together as an album and released it, what was your what was your hope? What was your desire? Uh, well, again, to keep the Haida language alive. To for it, it, I'm hoping that younger Haida people will know that they can create music in the Haida language and be a part of the national music scene. Mm. <laughs> mm. Uh, but also, um, many of the songs are about supernatural beings. So I wanted that um, to be a key part of the album. The title track, mm-hmm. Grizzly Bear Town, mm-hmm. that is the name for the village that my great-grandmother was born in, the mm-hmm. village of Skidance. And it is a song exploring the idea of colonization and our way through colonization. Uh, and it, because it, of those very heavy ideas, we felt it was the most significant song for the album, and it became the title track. Nice. Uh, Terry Lynn, it's been such a pleasure having you on the show today. We really appreciate your time, and uh, it's been great speaking with you. And once again, for those people that are listening, you can uh, go and check out Terry Lynn Williams-Davidson online at her uh, website. That is uh, ravencallingproductions.ca, if I'm not mistaken. Is that correct, Terry Lynn? Yes, it is. And you can find out more about her and see all the things that she is involved with. Uh, and some, some you won't be disappointed, I guarantee you. There's some wonderful images, and uh, she's really done a fabulous job of putting this all together. Terry Lynn, uh, uh, thanks once again, and Chimigwech for joining us. Chimigwech, thank you very much. How and that is Terry Lynn Williams-Davidson. She's a musician, author, activist, artist, and lawyer who ha- is dedicated to the continuation of Haida language and culture. That's our show for today. We thank you for listening, and please tune in next time. Until then, onigiha. <laughs>